This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You are listening to White the truck it i'm dooner coming to you from the brand new dooner studios here it's a work in progress just getting unpacked here i'm joined by michael vincent the dude hey thanks for helping me bring this desk over hey no problem brother beautiful spring day hey we got lucky that day too man because it's been raining and storms and all kinds of stuff brought in there it's looking great good progress on the studio my friend yeah i need to get some cameras in here to add like a little bit more depth still just going off the webcam right now but uh you know it's going to be great and it's a big step up from having that master bed behind me so i got that going for me i gotta tell you something though when you're unpacking you come across like the damnedest things and i found this thing in one of my boxes hold on just a second here okay uh-oh. Oh, here it is. I'm curious. So I, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I, I drove a race car, right? There I am, beardless, driving a race car, Michael Vincent. See wow. Look at Beautiful. you. We got to get it. We got to get a closer, better picture of you beardless, man. That's kind of, uh, yeah. it's kind of unnerving. It's well, unnerving a little bit. I got to flex a little bit because, you know, these, we're talking to some NASA guests today and they, they've been to some way cooler places. Like I've built a Lego International Space Station. Our guest today um, has been dealing with the Inter- International Space Station as long as it's been in existence. It's going to be exciting stuff. Also, I'm sure you guys heard late last night, they started to move the, uh, the boat stuck over there in the Suez Canal, the ever given. We thought it would be never given or never moving or whatever joke meme you want to make. Finally, it's moving, and I believe it's going to a well-named bay. Tell me about it. It's called, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> heading to, uh, what is it called? Bitter Lake, which is a, 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 it's a staging area, I guess, in the Suez Canal. They're going to check it out, make sure everything is, is square with it. they got to get it out of there, and then, I guess, uh, check those side propellers and so on and so forth. They're going to check it out for technical issues Well, hey, once they get it to Bitter Lake. When you have a shipping disaster that can be seen from space, no better guest to have on than NASA. Have you ever screwed up so bad that you have, uh, your, your, your screw up was visible from space? Well, it was never seen from space. Whether or not it was visible or not is a, is a, is a question, but that's all I'm going to say. The space station did not exist when this particular well, incident may or may not have occurred. Beautiful. And we got uh, Wayne Craig here. He says, hey guys, starting the week off right with what the truck. Of course you are. You're going to be smarter than everybody this week, Wayne. Let me just share this out with the people in the audience. That's right. We just mentioned on today's show, we're talking about the partially freed ever given. NASA joins the show to talk about the International Space Station, which just surpassed 20 years with continuous human presence on board. What keeps the station's inhabitants working and in turn keeps the station orbiting? Michael Vincent, it's cargo resupply. Uh- I was going to say toilets. <laughs> that too. We'll get into those, man. Yeah, you know, once you're up there, it's hard to go. You got to. You have to go somewhere, yeah. right? <laughs> you gotta, you're going to have to do something, right? I mean, it's like, wait, hold the bracket. I forgot to go to the bathroom before we leave. Yeah. Hold on a second. We'll also be talking about. <laughs> we'll also be talking about demystifying digital brokers, the latest on driver demand, headlines, and much more. But before we get there, let's tip the band. This episode is brought to you by Legend Transportation, which has been establishing partnerships throughout through outstanding customer service since 2007. Learn more at newlegendinc.com. 
Let's hit the headlines. Yeah. Beautiful. It's free. The, the Ever Given is refloated in the Suez Canal. Kim Link Wills reports the Ever Given has been successfully refloated in the Suez Canal, much to the joy or maybe the malign of Twitter. We've been having some fun with those memes. So, But canal service provider, leaf agencies, they confirmed the news on its Twitter account at approximately 9.15 a.m. Uh, Monday, so just a little while ago. I was hearing about it last night, though. They tweeted it with uh, utmost pleasure that we can confirm the Suez Canal authority and staff have su- were successful in refloating the MV ever given. She is currently underway to the Great Bitter Lake that you had mentioned. More information mm-hmm. will follow on their profile, so keep abreast of that. A little more here. Tell them about it, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. So early Monday, the Suez Canal Authority, uh, the C or SCA, issued a statement that the Ever Given had been partially refloated, right? So the result of a successful push and tow maneuvers, which led to the restoration of 80% of the vessel's direction. The SA said the stern, which had been stuck 13 feet from the bank of the Suez Canal, had been moved 334 feet from the edge where it had been wedged since last Tuesday morning. The refloating operation resumed later Monday during high tide my friend so they waited for high tide smart move allowing for all the uh, full restoration of the vessels of vessels direction so it positioned in the middle of the navigable waterway so now it's uh, on its way and will resume immediately upon completion of the restoration of the complete direction sending it to the great bitter lakes uh where it will go under uh technical inspection to make sure she's seas worthy i would suppose yeah, and in the in an Associated Press report, Peter Burdowski, he's the CEO of the salvage company Boscalis, that was hired to free the Ever Given. I believe they might have been using that digger that uh, we, we have seen so famously. He said on Dutch yeah. radio that the partial refloating or of the partial refloating, he said, don't cheer too soon. So we're not out of the woods yet, Michael. He said the good news is that the stern is free, but we saw that as the simplest part of the job. So still a lot of work to go. Right now, currently, there's more than 320 ships still stuck at anchor. It has an estimated cost of global cost of $59 billion. You're waiting on IKEA stuff. They've also confirmed that they had goods on those vessels. I'm sure many others did. But I want to clarify one thing, because I saw this on Twitter, and people, um, a lot of mainstream interest being taken in supply chains. So some people are okay. they're, they're seeing stockouts here. Remember these inventory stockouts? We've been talking about this impending inventory crisis. Folks out there, it has nothing to do here in the United States with the Suez Canal, though. That is most likely due to what's going on on the West Coast, where we have our own port crisis with 26 vessels stuck at anchor nearly every single day for a timeline that's much longer than the 2015 West Coast port crisis. So there will be ramifications here, of course, from the Suez Canal, but most likely what you're seeing right now is due to the West Coast, Michael. Yeah, excellent point, Dooner. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I was not going to, but that's, that is an excellent point. People that I talk to as well, they're, you know, that don't know better, haven't been watching it and so forth, have been like, is this due to the Suez? Is it because of it? No, the Suez, we haven't even felt that yet. No, right? we, no haven't we haven't. Felt that. The stockouts, like you mentioned, and everything issues we're having is that West Coast issue in uh, San Pedro Bay, et cetera, that continues uh, somewhat right now. So, yeah. Yeah. And- so if you get the What the Truck newsletter, it comes out every Tuesday at 6 p.m. There'll be one tomorrow. Go to FreightWaves.com slash WTT. Last week's was called The uh, the More You Pay, The Worse Service Is. And here's a headline on FreightWaves. Transportation costs keep rising as service deteriorates. This is from Zach Strickland's chart of the week. National van truckload tender rejection rates 
That's the percentage of electronic requests for capacity declined by carriers. They've exceeded 20% since early August outside of every single day in February. The truckload market appeared to be on a path towards stability with rejection sliding slowly through the first month of the year before those winter storms disrupted trucking networks and shipping production cycles. The results have been rejection rates consistently above 25% since February 18th. Absolutely. And with decreasing carrier compliance come increasing transportation rates, Dooner. And as you point out many times, worse service, right? Service starts to uh, deteriorate. The average van truckload spot rate increased 20% for the beginning of the end of February. Oh, um, yeah, from beginning to the end of February, according to truckstop.com. Spot rates are much more volatile and and represent roughly 10 to 20% of the four higher truckload market freight volume. Most of the freight moves under more consistent pricing and contract or contract rates. The overall average cost of a dry van truckload move increased 6% over the same period, according to FreightWaves van contract index, mm. which measures the average median base rate per mile truckload invoices on a daily basis. The index largely consists of long-term contract rates and uh, excludes loads that are under 250 miles uh, in length. It, it should be noted, though, that retail fuel costs, and I'm sure you've seen this if you've been at the pump, if you follow John Kingston's work over here at FreightWaves.com, we're on that DOEEIA average. It's been, it's been going up for almost 20 weeks straight now, if not 20 weeks. Well, it should be noted that fuel costs also increased roughly 12% last month, according to the Department of Energy, which influences the spot rates. But fuel star charges have been removed from the contract rates as, you know, they're still not exactly sure what to negotiate as these keep going up. Where is there an end in sight? It's hard to see. And even in John Kingston's articles, he doesn't seem if he's entirely clear on when that may be, Michael. That's exactly right. So, uh, I mean, the, the pricing spot market premiums of 30 of 50 percent spend too much generating. Uh, you can spend a lot of money guaranteeing that you're going to have your 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 capacity there. Right. And then lose out in, in the end if rates start to come down, vice versa too low on your negotiations and you start uh, losing capacity to the spot markets. Very difficult time right now to set up those contract rates moving into four when you don't know where things are going. I have to agree with you there. There's one more story on FreightWaves.com. We'll just touch on it briefly here. Chipotle invests in self-driving startup Neuro as it prepares for delivery's future. Brian Strait reports. You can read this whole thing on here, but basically restaurant chain Chipotle Mexican Grill announced it as a partnership and a funding round with self-driving startup Neuro. The investment was made in uh, November 2020, but Chipotle's participation was just revealed by the company. So really interesting article there. Modern Shippers, a newer uh, sister site we have here at FreightWaves. Com. Check it out. If you go to FreightWaves.com, you can click on um, all of our different sister sites. They're listed right up at the top. Check out Brian Strait's great reporting on these new emerging final mile markets. But right now, let's go to our guests of the hour. They are from NASA. They've seen these shipping disasters from outer space. Well, maybe not personally, but they may from the International Space Center. It is Bianca Rim. She is a NASA electrical engineer supporting the International Space Station cargo resupply at Kennedy Space Center, Florida. She's she's also called the space-bound cargo bellhop. And we have Randy Gordon. He's NASA Deep Space Logistics cargo integration manager and International Space Station ground processing senior project manager at Kennedy Space Center, Florida. Put much more easily, he's the cargo wrangler. Thank you, folks, for joining us on the air today. Hi. 
Hey, it's good to be here. Yeah, well, we're very happy that you have here, that that you are here, and it's it's a cool time to celebrate. I've got my Lego International Space Station out, and I believe it was in November that we celebrated 20 years of continuous human presence on this station. But before we get into all that and the cargo resupplies, how about you guys introduce yourselves? Let's start with you, Bianca. Well, you did a good job. Um, <laughs> my name is Bianca Rim. I'm an electrical engineer. I work with the engineering directorate at Kennedy Space Center, and I support the International Space Station program, the Gateway program, as well as the Human Landing System program. So um, I'm Randy Gordon. I've been with NASA since uh, 1990. I worked the uh, shuttle program and then ISS. I still support ISS some. That's the International Space Station. And uh, my main focus now is on the gate planning for Gateway, which will orbit the moon and support uh, Artemis landings on the moon. Wow. So for people who aren't familiar, that actually just begs the question, what are what are Artemis landings on the moon? Can how how are they, how is that all going to work? Yeah, sure. Uh, Bianca, I'll take a cut at that and you jump in. But, okay. uh, you know, we haven't been back to the moon since the early 70s. And the Artemis program is, uh, you know, agency wide program to uh, bring people back, hopefully, uh, you know, in the mid 2020s. And the so they'll the crew would launch on an SLS rocket uh, going in a, an Orion capsule. And then we're going to use Gateway, which both um, Bianca and I support. Gateway will be a like an orbiting base around the moon for uh, crews to rendezvous with landers. You know, they'll travel there in an Orion capsule. They'll rendezvous at the Gateway with a, a lander that would go down to the surface of the moon and then bring them back. So uh, all these different pieces, uh, hopefully we can get them get rolling and get uh, people back to the crew. And um, hopefully that starts going in the next few years. Yeah, no, it sounds it sounds super cool. And one of the things, one of the most requested questions we've had since we have had NASA on here, the topic of bathrooms came out, space bathrooms. And I know you, you folks are stuck up there for a while up in space. So that begs the question, how do people go to the bathroom? Randy, I believe you have some insight on this. And I think we also have a supporting image of some cargo boxes. For the space station, the toilets are actually a Russian design, and I think the picture you have there is a this kind of cool, very old-school-looking shipping container that we'll get like six or a dozen of those once or twice a year from uh, our, our Russian partners. They'll send them to the Kennedy Space Center, and they have resupply uh, equipment in them, pumps, uh, fluid tanks, uh, uh, storage tanks, and... Um, the crew has a small stall. Uh, they even have a logo that looks like an old, old-timey uh, uh, outhouse. Yeah, that's the Russian shipping containers. I love those. Uh, we have quite a few of them. We hang on to them, even though they're, you know, it's something we could kind of throw away. We actually hang on to them and keep them in our office just because they have neat uh, Russian lettering on them. But the crew basically has an outhouse, and uh, in, instead of gravity, which pulls fluids and everything down through our plumbing systems on Earth. Uh, we have to use airflow. So you have kind of a suction force that will pull uh, liquids and solids away. That's the that's the simple, <laughs> uh, most tactful uh, description I can give. That was, I, I pressed the wrong button. You don't want me in, in Houston control, that's for sure. But uh, as you guys move forward and you're talking about, you know, you're building out these things like the landing site and gateway, et cetera. You've also got all the logistics of bringing up the science gear and the science experiments that are coming on right now. This gets infinite. I mean, it gets 
astronomically more and more complicated the further you go, does it not? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the uh, commercial resupply service that we have for ISS has set up a really good platform for us to leverage for going to Gateway. You know, we have uh, SpaceX and Northrop Grumman routinely send cargo to the space station, and Sierra Nevada will add to them in the next few years sending cargo with a Dream Chaser. That's a picture of a Northrop Grumman Cygnus module being loaded with cargo there. And so for Gateway, we get to leverage that. And um, I like the way we, you know, we're not trying to send crew and cargo on the same mission. We have missions dedicated for uh, cargo, so you can really specialize. Um, And we've set up from the Kennedy Space Center uh, organization called Deep Space Logistics. It is managing that effort, and we've awarded a a Gateway Logistics Services contract to SpaceX to be our first uh, cargo uh, delivery team for Gateway. Beautiful. So th- they'll leverage what they've done with their Dragon spacecraft for ISS. They'll leverage that to take cargo to Gateway. Let me ask you a question, Bianca, because you have the best glasses on of all of us here. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you don't even have any on. I know. I'm wearing my contacts. Actually, I, just, okay. I, I was just reading a report on AR contacts. I bet those would be super cool, even up in space. Mm. Can you wear contact lenses in space? I don't know. That's a good question. I would be skeptical. Uh, I just don't know. But I know, you know, it's kind of strange. The crew members in Zero G, their eyeballs actually change shape and their vision changes. So I would think it would be hard to even keep a good contact prescription. Yeah. So if you have bad eyes, can you be an astronaut? Is it like being a fighter pilot? You have to have good vision? I don't know what the actual limitations are, but I don't, you can't have bad eyes. I don't think you can have bad eyes. Probably don't have to have 20-20 vision. I don't think it's like fighter pilot or anything like that. Okay. Well, Bianca, I have a question for you. So we're talking about the cargo and when you have cargo, you need a port, you need to, you need modules to bring the cargo on. So talk a little bit about that. What happens when the cargo is docked? How is it unloaded? Where is it put? What's the logistics behind that operation? Are you talking about when we recover the cargo or when we send it? Uh, when you send it, so the dock cargo modules, we actually have a picture with uh, Christina Kosh on the ISS. Basically, for the external cargo, let's say, there's um, different pallets that the the cargo can sit on. So in terms of getting it, you know, we get the payload developers to bring, they bring their cargo experiments, supplies, all of that. We kind of get it together. And then in the space station processing facility, we organize the logistics of how we're going to handle it, taking it from where it is. So let's say it's something that's a powered payload and it's in the facility on facility power. We'll work out the details on how we're going to transfer it to battery power, then transfer it to the launch pad and um, then transfer it to the capsule power. So that's pretty much the process. So depending on, you know, there are different types of payloads that have different constraints. So we could have, um, a constraint on how long it could be um, unpowered because, you know, even when we take it off of um, the battery power to put it on the capsule power, there is a, a delay in time when it will not be powered or there could be some orientation constraints or temperature constraints. And then sometimes some of the payload developers actually use Bluetooth communication with their payloads. So they put it on our cargo vehicle while we transfer it over to the launch pad. And then that way they're able to monitor their payload, um, you know, whatever parameters they're looking to monitor with their sensors by Bluetooth. 
That's really interesting. I was wondering about the fragile nature of all the different types of cargo that are there. But, you know, you know, Randy, we've got a video here that kind of hits home with uh, it's a little closer to home to what I've experienced. I'm sure what Duner has experienced, what people on, uh, you know, think of in logistics, trucks hitting docks and stuff like that. The sensitive cargo that's coming back from space. I've, I've shipped sensitive cargo, but not science. Can you tell us what's going on right here? Can you explain what's going on here? Well, I'll talk you know, to that. Wait a minute. Yeah, I was going to throw that over to Bianca. She's oh, actually okay. working now. Awesome. Thank you. So that, um, the first, what we saw was the helicopter. So once the capsule landed and they put the cargo on the boat, there are time constraints for some of the payloads on how quickly they need to be gotten back to their um, their payload developers. So what they did is load as much as they could um, into the helicopter from um, the boat once they, they got it from the capsule, retrieved it. And then they put as much as they could in. We were hoping we could get it all in one trip, but we had to do it in two trips just because um, in the process, we would be late getting the payloads back to the people who had the earliest um, delivery constraints. So um, that's what the helicopter is coming in. So at that time, we received the cargo, and we're basically doing the turnover of the cargo from SpaceX to NASA, and then that will be delivered. All of that will go back to the space station processing facility and then back to the payload developers. Does that complicate things at all, working with SpaceX? Has it been a great relationship? Does it, does it make the logistics of everything easier? What is that process like? Well, I think it's pretty smooth, and we learned something new um, every time. And so um, the communication is obviously the key. And so, I mean, we plan it out pretty well up front and then are really kind of just on guard to make sure that if anything goes awry, that we've prepared for all the contingencies. So it really is pretty smooth. I mean, we work well together. And I think at a certain point, if you were to you know, if somebody was observing, they probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference that from SpaceX and NASA and that there was actually a handover. We're kind of just all working together to get the job done. That's a good yeah. point. I really like that about our about NASA and our contractors. It, oftentimes you can't tell, you know, who's a contractor. And, and we have lots of different contractors involved. So even they work work well together. Yeah, because even with that, with that handover, it's not you know, we I say SpaceX to NASA, but there's actually an intermediate handover and, and people that help in that process to other contractors. So, yeah, it's a pretty big team of people, but kind of all working together from wherever, I guess, our paychecks come from. It doesn't matter. So let me ask you this, uh, Randy, when you're putting all this stuff together and, and getting ready to ship up, you get the next rocket that's going up and you're, you're loading this stuff in regular logistics, just earthbound terrestrial logistics, it's called. There's so many different variables that go in and last minute changes that can happen. When you think of like air cargo, the weather, et cetera, changes the fuel you're putting on there, therefore the weight limits, et cetera, and you're handling all this sensitive stuff. What goes into that last minute type of planning to get in there? Are there changes that occur because of different parameters that may fall out of spec? right at the last minute? Yeah, there are. Sometimes we have, like for ISS, you'll have uh, changes on orbit that'll drive, you know, a different manifest. So you'll have late breaking changes like that. There's always things going on with the launch vehicle too. You know, launch vehicle and weather, those uh, drive a lot of changes and delays. Uh, and that's just inherent in the industry. And every once in a while, something will go wrong with, you know, cargo and that'll uh, mess something up. We had a mission uh, several years ago where 
the crew reported, and this is a ground crew, reported that there was a green liquid dripping uh, out of some bags. And so that was really shocking and seemed kind of curious that we had some green space liquid dripping. It it turned out to just be uh, colored water that was part of a fluid experiment where the astronauts would kind of spin a bottle and you could see the fluid move better if it was uh, colored green. And that bottle got squeezed a little too much in the cargo packing process and and leaked out. Wow. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure if people know, just for scale and reference. So the, the International Space Station here, it looks big. It's about the size of a football field or about a third the size of the Ever Given, which was blocking the uh, the Suez Canal. But does, does it feel spacious? Have you been inside this thing? Does it feel spacious living inside there? I've been in most of the modules from the U.S. side. There's about a dozen modules that are the size of like a small bedroom or, a, or kind of a school bus size. So cylinder shaped modules, but there's about a dozen of them. So yeah, that's a lot of space. There's an awesome uh, Google, you know, how uh, Google Earth and Google Maps, you can kind of find the street of your neighborhood and go walk through it. Well, you can do that in the space station uh, from Google. And I use it as a work, work resource. Plus, I just like to go in there and explore. And uh, you can see, you can look right in the toilet. You can look in a sleep compartment. You can go through all the modules on the U.S. side and the uh, Russian side too. So it's a, it's a neat experience to get that visual. So, so Randy, is, let me ask you this. This is my own kid's question. I guess I just came up with it in my mind. Is it all business up there or are, are any of those modules like uh, home theaters for a little bit of R and R type of stuff? Mental health has got to be a, an, an important thing when you're up there for extended period of time, I would imagine. Right. It definitely is. The crew, each crew member has a really nice crew compartment. That's kind of small, uh, kind of closet size, but it's enough space for them to sleep. They have their pictures. They'll have a laptop. They can watch movies. So they each get some space dedicated to them. And, uh, you know, I think the crew really like the cupola. That's this window observatory that looks down on Earth. And you hear that the crew really likes to spend time uh, there. But crew mental health is definitely important and time is scheduled for that. And um, that and, and exercise is really critical. They have to exercise a lot because they're in that zero gravity and that kind of makes your your bones and your muscles deteriorate some but uh so that's that's another factor and even the food a lot of effort is put into making the food appealing and pleasing just to keep crew morale up you know they're up there about six months that's a that's a long stay uh relatively isolated so a lot of focus does go into that crew crew spirit Wow. Well, Mike, you kind of prompted it with your kid question there. So since you set this up, I'll segue into it. We have a question here out of Boston, Massachusetts from Dylan and Olivia DeMars. They, uh, let's roll the tape. Let's see what they wanted to ask. Hi, NASA. So I have a question about our rovers. We just send one to Mars. Are we going to send one to any other planet soon? And my question is, if there's no gravity in space, then how do rovers just uh, stay in one place? Wouldn't they just flow everywhere? <laughs> Ready, you know, I vote for moons of Jupiter. I think it would be awesome to send something there next. I think, you know, obviously, uh, resources that are limited will continue to explore Mars. But the moons of Jupiter are really exciting because you can have like subterranean liquid oceans on some of the moons where the there's enough heat at the center of the moon to melt water that's not at the surface, but is underneath the surface. And you could have conditions where there's enough uh, energy and liquid water to even 
be suitable for life. Um, it would be, you know, unlikely there would be life there. But you find like life on Earth at the thermal vents under the ocean. And if microbes can live there, then at least similar conditions could exist on like moons of Jupiter. And the other one was, how do they stay on the planet? Bianca, maybe you know that. How they stay on the planet. The rover. She said, because well, there's no gravity in space. Well, how do they not just fly off into space? I mean, it doesn't just, I mean, I guess that microgravity environment, people aren't just, um, you know, flying out into anywhere. So, I mean, but I'm not sure what type of technology they actually use on the actual rovers to make sure that they stay grounded. So, I mean, I think it's a good question. I'm not sure. I would have to ask. Yeah, I, I think she may have misunderstood the notion of gravity in outer space because the Earth has gravity, the moon has less gravity, Mars has gravity that's at a level between the Earth and the moon. So the real answer there is there is gravity out in space. Whenever you're on some kind of body, even a small asteroid would have proportionally small amount of gravity. Um, and if you're on a planet bigger than Earth, some of the new planets that are discovered outside the solar system are super Earths might be twice the size of Earth. So if you were standing on those, you would feel like twice your weight. You know, the force would pull down on you uh, with, with twice as much as it does here on Earth. Well, thank you. I mean, you've been very gracious with your, your time today. Before we let you go, anything you'd like to plug? What should some of our listeners check out to learn more about what NASA is doing, especially insofar as logistics are concerned? NASA has so much going on. It's incredible. If you go to a NASA website or just search for a NASA website, uh, you can find tons of information. I'm very excited about our gateway program because it's this base around the uh, moon where crew will meet and we'll send cargo and then we'll send them down to the surface of the moon from there. Uh, it'll be like a hub or a, a way station uh, as you go to the moon. So I find that really exciting, especially from a logistics point of view. That will be our uh, our hub. I, the other, another exciting thing to me is the Mars helicopter. Um, okay. So that's something I think people have uh, there's lots of opportunities if you go to nasa.gov to get more information about the helicopter itself and then see some of its um, early adventures. Did you just drop a Mars helicopter on us? <laughs> They've had the helicopter there, Vincent. It was with the rover. <laughs> it's very cool. Yeah, it is yeah. cool. It is cool. Well, thank you, folks. Thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. And good thing they got that boat in the Suez Canal unstuck, because had they not, we would have asked you for uh, for your resolution to getting that thing loose. I'm glad it's out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It was nice to nice to be with you guys. Take care, folks. Have a great have a great day. Thanks for having us. Take Bye. You too. All right. Again, Bye. again, we'd like to thank our friends at Legend Transportation for sponsoring today's episode. Legend partners with strategic customers while providing seamless solutions for its drivers in its West Regional Premier. West Regional's premier freight transportation company. Learn more at newlegendinc.com. And right now, returning guest, it's Omar Singh. He's the founder and president at Surge Transportation. And today he wants to demystify digital brokers. Omar, thanks for coming back on. I think this is your second NASA episode in a row. Well, you're looking sharp today. Hey guys, it's good to see you again. Hey, you're looking sharp. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's our second time. It's our second time together. You're looking sharp today. Thank you. Appreciate oh, oh, it. I did the to wear a jacket for the show. Oh yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Don't get they, too. They Don't. were down in uh, Medellin, Colombia. We're opening the surge office here uh, with one of our partners. So, so we're down opening that. That's going to be exciting. We're here for the whole week. 
Well, you recently oh. wrote an article. You were talking about demystifying digital uh, digital brokers and all of those things. And you said that the industry has it backwards, right? Shippers go uh, transactional and they should go strategic, which is very sound advice. But talk about that in the context of digital brokers and demystifying them. So I think there's, there are like three main things that I want to talk about with digital brokers today. Yeah, number one, that's the first thing is the is the strategy that shippers should be using with brokers and the brokers should be using shippers. And then number two, and with respect to the digital folks, it's sort of a, you know, B2B versus B2C and then kind of the future. But yeah, as far as the strategy goes, I say that, you know, motor carriers should be primaries. Motor carriers should be primaries on lanes. They should be operating in a model where they are focusing on the cost of operating, whereas brokers are kind of focusing on the price, which is the market price of, of what that truck or what that motor carrier is going to charge you that day, which are different. And, and brokers can't really do things below cost, whereas primaries can do things at cost or at a reasonable margin to be to be profitable. So I don't really think that brokers and shippers should be going to brokers for primary business to say, hey, this is the majority of the freight that I have. And the majority of the time, you know, things are going to go as planned. And this is where I want you, you know, to kind of come in and, and cover the majority of the business. But rather, when the primaries can't do it, then you kind of go to the brokers and say, okay, for some reason or another, the routing guide broke down or there was an event, there was a spike, there was seasonality, there was a Suez Canal, right? There was some reason that the primaries can't do it. So brokers should come in as a supplement to the primaries and I think, try to strategically align themselves and their relationships with shippers in that way, rather than taking the place of primaries. Because at the end of the day, they still have to hire a truck and the truck still has to do it at cost. So to me, I think that strategy of going in and winning all of this baseline primary business and taking up market share by operating below cost, um, it's just not a sustainable model, you know? Um, And so I just kind of want to bring it up to the industry to say, you know, there's a reason those guys are losing money and there's a reason that things have been done the way they've been done for a long time. So it's just worth it's worth considering that, you know, there was a time when the traditional backhaul model of brokerage work where the primary takes the front haul out, doesn't have a load back, needs to get back and do it for below cost. I don't think that's happening anymore where people are operating below cost. It's not sustainable. And it's just I don't think the direction the industry is going. Yeah, some of them do that to to gain market share, but it quickly changes as they grow, right? If if you're a bro in the brokerage situation, so that that model that you're talking about is that inherently easier for a larger shipper than the smaller ones? And if not, how does a smaller one really a, a smaller shipper who can't command uh, these large bids to get these primaries in their in their wheelhouse or in their routing guide? How do they control that type of strategy? Well, I think for them, I think there are different options. You know, uh, one of the, or maybe there are several TMSs out there that are trying to kind of pull smaller shipper um, volume into sort of, uh, you know, community volume to where larger brokerages and larger fleets are interested in working with them. So um, Cubix is is one of those TMSs that does that. Um, You know, I think there are other sort of um, networks that do that, but I do realize that for some of the smaller shippers, it's hard. They don't have 400 yeah. people competing in their RFP. So, so 
it can go both ways. Yeah. Well, in, I guess I'm talking about the larger ones that have 400 people in their RFPs. Hey, can you, yeah, uh, can yeah. you elaborate on something for me? Cause in your article, you said, you say digital brokers are using a business to consumer strategy in a B2B environment and it's not working. Elaborate on that. What do you mean by it? So, yeah, I think that they did something really good with uh, rideshare apps, right? And it's, it's the same company. So you go to rideshare app, it's, it's business to consumer which is what I say a, a very largely outside of public safety. It's a very largely inconsequential movement of people to the extent that if you, if you take a different Lyft or Uber to the airport, when you go each time and it's a different driver and a different car and a different cleanliness, it doesn't really matter that much in life. And if you take an Uber to go to work every morning and you get a different driver every morning, you know, and it's a different car and it's a different temperature, it doesn't really matter that much. It's not a consequential transaction in your life unless something major happens, an accident along the way. Um, and, and, and so they took that model of saying, let's figure out an easier way of transporting people in a transactional way to apply it to business to business, which is transporting valuable goods in a strategic way. And it's just not the same because it, it does matter if you have a different driver every day, it does matter if the temperature is set wrong on the trailer. It does matter if the cleanliness of the trailer isn't up to spec for, you know, any food grade transportation. It does matter how many hours the driver has left in his day and his week in order to be able to make delivery. It does matter if the driver, you know, potentially has a religious objection to hauling alcoholers. There are a lot of things that matter in business to business that make that model of business to consumer uh, ride sharing app to say, okay, now we can do it with, you know, valuable goods and truckload transportation, business to business environment, taking hundreds of thousands of dollars of cargo. It's just, it's just not the same. So moving things, moving people transactionally versus moving high value goods strategically, they're, they're just not the same thing and building a whole model around it. Um, you just have to consider the differences. And I think that they're not being considered as well as they could be. Yeah. Well, if people want to consider those, they want to check out your article, they want to work with you, where should we send them to? Well, I think the article, you know, some of the articles we're starting to post on, um, on freight waves. I have a blog on our website. You know, if anyone wants to contact me directly, I will say, you know, I'm completely accessible and I like to see people do well. So info at search transportation is, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'll respond. It's good enough. I'll get it. It'll route to me. Um, yeah. Great. Omar, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon and stay sharp, brother. Yeah, thanks, guys. Good Take care. Again. All right. Thanks, thanks Omar. Omar. Hey, next we're going to talk to Robert Moffitt. He's EVP and Director of Operations over at Legend Transportation. Talk a little bit about future proofing because NASA's here and maybe even get into driver demand. We'll see where the day takes us. Robert, thank you for joining us on the air today. Good morning. Hey, we got to ask you, I mean, because the Suez Canal issue is going on, I, I don't think you would have seen any impacts yet, but uh, do you have customers calling about it or people concerned about it? And when do you think it, 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 when do you think the impacts of it may hit our shores, if at all? Well, um, knowing that we're on the West Coast and there's a lot of things that are moving around because of Long Beach and uh, stuff like that, um, I'm sure that there's a lot of impact that's going to happen um, because it's only been five days. It's kind of unique that we're going to figure out how we're going to get stuff to the ports now or how we're going to change a few things. It's going to be a very interesting uh, concept of what we have to do. Um, I know that there's a lot of uh, 
propaganda out there. I would say that uh, there are things that are going out there saying that it's going to crush the market, maybe, and we'll just have to see how that's going to come, how that's going to play out, and how quick we can fix it. Wow. Yeah, it's going to be interesting when you see these backups that are going on. And, you know, we've been talking about uh, future-proofing your supply chains and how your supply chains pre-COVID, if they're the same after COVID, then they're wrong because things are changing. And now we're seeing yet another event that is happening that no one could see this 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 coming, except for a lot of Monday morning armchair quarterbacks that are saying, well, duh, didn't you think this could possibly happen in the in the Suez? But now we have another thing where you're backed up how do you future-proof against something like this? Um, that's a good question because until we can get everybody, especially with the stuff that's coming in and uh, having to be offloaded and shipped where it needs to go to, I mean, there's it's, it's a hard plan because at the end of the day, you know, everybody's got capacity out there that says it's very tight. There's things that we want to get accomplished. There's, there's places we want to get to. And there's customers that we have to serve. So there's a lot of uh, different pieces that go along with this. A lot of it is, you know, the export, the import piece that allows us to, uh, you know, build on top of the positive things that are going on in trucking right now. But looking back at it, then you have to look at some of the shippers that are out there that might be manufacturers that might have immediate needs that, you know, might be shifting some of the capacity from what to another while we're waiting for us to all figure out how we're going to get everything to market. Yeah. I mean, are there going to be drivers there in the future? Because that's going to be a big issue too. I mean, even if you look at recent stats, I mean, these aren't even projecting 10 years out. This is just the past five, four years of data that I'm looking at. Nearly 57% of all truck drivers are more than 45 years old. And when you compare that to other parts of logistics, for example, in warehouses, 62% of warehouse workers are younger than 45. Are we going to have a labor issue? Is this where automation takes over in 10 years? That component of future-proofing, how do you see that playing out? Well, 10 years for automation. Um, I think it's going to be about 10%. In 10 years. Um, but the automation may be that there still has to be a qualified person in the equipment that's running down the road. Um, so I think that at the end of the day, yeah, there's going to be some automation, but it's about 10%. So we can talk about all the uh, analytics that are out there today and how we're trying to get there. But I just don't think there's a true solution because it still takes a human time. And then, you know, with regards to some of the things that are out there and the things that we want to get accomplished, it's how, how, do we, how do we bridge that gap at the end of the day? Because, you know, I listened to Bob Costello a couple of weeks ago, and, um, you know, there's a lot of things that have happened in the past with regards to the clearinghouse and the things that are going on that uh, really took some of the drivers off the road. Um, so how do we bring that value back into trucking? How do we get the younger groups to get into doing this industrial type of business? Um, I, you know, I served 22 years in the military. And at the end of the day, we always had, you know, people that were coming in and replacing and we were growing our the military. So how do we get the people to get into the, the industry that we have today of transportation? And it's, you know, we're running down the road, you know, it's heavy duty equipment. It's, 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 uh, you know, it's a it's a missile on the road. So how, how do we fix that uh, over the next 10 years? 
Yeah, and not only the 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 difficult nature of of over the road trucking, right? It can be a lonely thing. It can be a difficult thing. In times of COVID, it can be a particularly dangerous thing and and not so pleasant uh, experience, but uh, very gratifying to many anyways. But now you're also competing with stimulus checks and you're and and local delivery with e-commerce exploding and 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 really that that local delivery, the delivery to the house is the need for more and more drivers in that area, which are home every single night, that type of stuff. Warehousing jobs are are in great demand and construction is through the roof. How do you compete and lure drivers from those different industries as well? That's a good question, too, because at the end of the day, if a guy can go home every night because he's going to put his eight or 10 hours in a day and make a sustainable wage, it's hard to say, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to run a truck and you're going to go out for, uh, we'll call it seven days because it's three days out and three days back, and then I'm going to give you two days at home or you're 34 and then start all over again. What kind of cell is that that we can ensure that we have the OTR that's working? And the infrastructure that's out there right now, I mean, that's truly what, where we're at today. And knowing that we have a lot of stuff that's sitting in warehouses right now that aren't getting delivered because of the capacity constraints and you know, the workforce that is out there. And I would say coming out of COVID, I would say that most people that probably were driving a truck probably rolled back into the warehouse because they knew they could uh, have that same job, your forklift driver, do certain automations. In the warehouse, and you know, some of those drivers are going to be uh, picked up from that uh, point of view as far as the job skills that they have from driving. There's so many issues going on in the supply chain. I mean, Suez got all the headlines, but the much bigger issue here in the United States is what's going on at the ports in the West Coast with those 25 plus ships at anchor every day. We're seeing this, you know, now we're, we talk about Ford Air. They're going to have to be escalating driver pay. Uh, that's a headline on freightwaves.com. Um, we saw a lot of that in 2018. What do you think are the, uh, I mean, what are you seeing from your seat right now with all of these challenges? And what are your customers concerned about? And the capacity, the other issue. Well, from the capacity constraint that we have with all of our customers is this. We do the best to accept as much freight as we can for our customers and perform on it, you know, and perform it, perform the delivery, you know. I mean, if we're going to, if we're going to make a commitment to a customer, you know, picking that up and, uh, you know, providing them with a the trailer that lets them preload, which gives us the opportunity to work hours of service with our drivers, which in turn, at the other end, we hope that we can drop and, uh, basically pick up a dry and uh, uh, empty van and then go to our next location and basically, you know, provide good, solid freight that allows the drivers to be basically running down the road and not wasting their hours, their hours of service on their books, plus allows them to hopefully manage their time a little bit better, which would increase some of the, you know, true attributes of trying to get things done and making sure that we can continue to provide capacities in areas because we're pushing drivers back and forth into those, those segments. And I would say on top of that is, you know, from our side, a lot of things that we're doing right now, we're truly engineering, you know, from our side inside our TMS and things that we have in place and customers that we have. We're trying to look at uh, ultimate pieces of where, where we have a conversation that says, I'm going to take this customer and I'm going to go this direction. Who is on the other side that can get me back and I can have a conversation uh, with the whole group, you know, corporate wise and say, how can, how can, how can you guys help me 
alleviate some of the pieces like deadhead, um, making sure that you know we have that opportunity to provide services and make sure that we're uh, you know alleviating any problems because at the end of the day, with all those things that I'm talking about, it really drives it really drives driver driver retention, and that's probably the biggest thing that everybody's dealing with these days, also. Yeah, I have to agree with you. Before we let you go, I would be remiss not to ask, what whose jersey is that behind you on the wall, the 23? Oh, that's just, okay. So the building that we're in today, um, we had a good friend that helped us build it. And uh, we, are a, we are a sponsor of the Sacramento Kings. And uh, so when we decided to put it on there, here, I'll tilt it up and you'll see what it says. It oh. actually says legend. Oh, now, why 23? Oh, it's, it's, it's actually us. Oh, okay. Beautiful. So it's, you know, it's, it's a you thing, you know, and uh, we had it framed. I, I can say that I have something at home that, uh, uh, that we're, uh, we're Arizona-based company, and I have a signed uh, Wind Rescue jersey, but I, that's at my house because I don't want it to disappear. <laughs> smart move I, actually on wednesday we're talking we're talking to this guy who built an analytic device for for baseball cards and all those things i don't know if you've seen that market but jersey collectibles and baseball cards and those things have just like skyrocketed they've gone up like bitcoin it's wild robert um but people who want to learn more about legend they want to they want to check out what you folks are up to where should we send them to uh the website and it's a redesigned website it's been up for about two weeks uh it's www.newlegendinc.com and, uh, you know, you can reach out to us personally, and the 800 number is 855-210-2300. can help you. Let us know. Thank you. Have a great week. We appreciate your time today. Okay. Appreciate it. Take it Thanks, easy. Robert. Now it's time for a little big deal, little deal. Big deal. Little deal. There we go. All right. Ford Air, Michael Vincent, Ford Air has announced yeah. its largest rate increase for capacity providers. Is that a big deal or a little deal? It's a big deal. It's a little bit of a confusing headline, right? They're, they're, they're giving a rate increase to their capacity drivers in hopes to keep them on board and keep that capacity moving and give them the ability to then hire more drivers as they're also advertising that as well. I think it's a big deal, dude. I mean, it's a sign. Everybody's starting to update uh, and give rate increases to their drivers. Now we got Ford Air giving raises to their capacity providers and $10,000 sign-on bonuses, right? So I think it's a big deal. I mean, we're just talking about the the driver shortage and we talk about you know automation and will it displace drivers or not. Automation hopefully will at least in the near future, or not too distant future, start helping alleviate some of the problems of trying to get enough uh, people driving these trucks, Dooner. I think it's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, they're even giving an 11 cent per mile increase for team owner operators, a five cent increase for individual owner operators. So pretty decent. But the one problem is when you start getting into uh, it's a losing game when you have to keep paying more and more money. Now, obviously, you want drivers to get as much money as they can support drivers and all of that stuff. But you know, after 2018, 2019, we saw those record number of bankruptcies. So there is a negative side to all that when the bottom of the market does eventually drop out. And Vincent, that could happen. I mean, as so many people are getting vaccinated now. Um, we're going to go back on vacation, right? We're going to go back on trips. We're going to spend money eating out versus buying just nonstop amounts of crap off Amazon. 
Yeah, you, you like to see people making money. And you like to see drivers starting to make a decent wage because you see so many times when the rates are depressed. And I agree with you, though, as things open up. And it, it's really the smaller guys that are more exposed to those bankruptcies, I would mm. think, Dooner. You know, those guys that during the tough times are just making a buck this turn to finance the next the next move and, and that type of stuff. And that's where they see a boom and then crash at the end, I would think. But um I've got a big deal, bit little deal for you. So yeah. video gamers, we're talking about automation and trucking, right? Mm. And 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 it alleviating the drivers. Video gamers could be the next generation of truck drivers huh. through automation. Big deal, little deal. I, you know what? I I I don't doubt it. I mean, there's been a lot of arguments going on about how safe automated trucks would be if they would still need an operator pilot. I mean, if you look at drones, right? You still can't. To get a drone license, an out-of-sight license for delivery has been a huge pain. Now, imagine trying to get one for a truck. So maybe you do need drivers behind the wheel. And there's a whole, you know, we talked about that statistic with Robert about, what was it? 57% of drivers are over 45 years old. So not your primetime gaming age group at all. But you do have a a burgeoning younger group of people who, you know, you have 40,000 drivers leaving the market last year. But you have 30 or 40,000 people playing Euro Truck Simulator Every single day online, Gray Sharkey has this great article on FreightWaves.com. So it may sound a little silly that video gamers could be the drivers of the future, but Michael Vincent, they may well be. We may be looking at a completely different place 10 years from now. And if I'm a driver, right, I don't want my livelihood taken away. But if you're telling me, wait, I don't have to be over the road. I can just jump into a, a driving simulator. Or I can turn on my PlayStation 10 or whatever's out at the time and I can move trucks around. You know, I, I wouldn't complain. No, I think it's kind of cool. I think you embrace the disruption that's possibly out there. And I think you go for it, dude. I think it's a big deal because I, I think there's actually, it's kind of a cool transition that could absolutely happen. It's not going to happen overnight either. I think if you're a 57 year old truck driver, you really don't have to worry about seeing this be a threat to your livelihood uh, in, in your uh, your term as a driver, unless you're going to drive to about 80 or 90. Yeah, this is more about drive about recruiting the drivers of um of the future, right? Yeah, I think so. Here's a big deal, so. little here's a big deal, little deal for you. This is this has to do with the I believe it's called the Netrodyne system that Amazon is starting to use. They were planning, they're monitoring a bunch of driver behavior with these things. So, like you've seen a lot of over-the-road cabs, now Amazon, their delivery trucks, they're putting cameras in there to analyze driver behavior and behavior and take that feedback. Um, but one thing that Amazon's not doing is they're not monitoring mask use, which they had originally planned by these camera systems. Big deal or little deal? Uh, the system itself is a big deal. It's a very cool system. Uh, the issue of not monitoring the masks, I think, is a, is, a, is a little deal that could be blown up into a big deal. I don't think it's a, a big deal at all. I get the argument uh, against uh, too much or, or, or a, yeah, too much invasion of privacy. Uh, but let's consider the fact that these drivers are on the job and they're working for the company. But let's also consider the fact myself wearing a mask while they're driving. Yeah. I make fun of people who are driving their cars by themselves wearing a mask. Well, don't uh, be such a Karen. How do you maybe they forgot to take it off when they got it? Maybe they forgot to take it off when they got out of the grocery store, Michael Vincent. Why'd you no, buy your I own know, business? But I mean, it's and I've done it myself. <laughs> I've done it myself. I'm driving out around and go, man, what am I wearing my masks? Because I'm so used to wearing it now. It's just I, what I'm saying is it's not important to monitor whether they're wearing their, wearing their mask <laughs> driving the truck to me. All the other stuff that is in this uh, Netrodyne is really awesome stuff as far as heartbreaking and teaching them how to be safer drivers. And they've had some great results, like 48% less accidents and, and uh, uh, poor driving habits down like 50%, which is great stuff. That's, that's where the importance comes through. That's the big deal. 
Big drama online, too. Amazon's uh, comms department, they actually tweeted this. They said, do you really believe that our workers pee in bottles? Th- that was st- That's how they started a tweet out about. <laughs> it started big trouble with, with AOC. And now a lot of people online looking into it, and they're finding internal memos where Amazon actually had mentioned people urinating in bottles, defecating in bags, and those kind of things. So it's a very sensitive topic. I guess maybe these cameras in the car could could catch you if you're peeing in a bottle. But I agree with you. Like, there's no reason that they should have to wear a mask when they're when they're driving the vehicle. And stop making fun of me. Sometimes I leave Publix and I forget to take my mask down. I don't need Michael Vincent driving around in his dude truck being like, oh. you <laughs> I'm still- laughing at you, pointing at you while I'm wearing my mask. Right. <laughs> that's, the, that's the problem. The dude's not all that bright, my friend, at times. What's next? I got a big deal for you, brother. You, you've, <laughs> you've seen the Suez Canal get Suez by Evergiven. Yeah. A Toronto subway station was Suez by a beaver. A beaver? What, he built a dam a across beaver. the... They built a dam... Check it out. He built a dam across the train tracks? No, he got turned sideways and couldn't figure out how to go up or down the steps right there, bro. They had to bring in some tugboats and stuff and get him get him lured out of there. What a um <laughs> one of those spokesmen from for the station, he said that they are they're the hardest workers of uh of Canada or some of the hardest workers. I guess it was his name was Rascal. He says Rascal. He's well, the, the Royal York. They call him two different names. I agree. They did in the article. They called him. They called him Rascal, but then they also called him Nickel. I don't understand because it's just yeah. one beaver, right? Yeah, it's. I think it's just one beaver. It looks like the same beaver to me. Um, but I guess they're common in Toronto, but they're they're nocturnal, so you don't normally get uh, disrupted during a rush hour in a subway. But this one shut the whole place down, man. Uh, Toronto was shut down for like a week. They couldn't get this thing. Uh, <laughs> wow, it's like worse. Than, just as bad. The Suez was only six days. They said nickel. Yeah. The, they said nickel. The Beaver was clearly afraid and stressed to find himself amongst so many people, but he's healthy with clear eyes and a slapping tail. All signs of a very healthy Beaver. So good, good to know, and good on a uh, on nickel or what was the other name? Rascal, whatever the hell they want to call him. Rascal <laughs> or nickel or whatever his name is. And the other good news is they didn't, you know, take care of it like they did the bear in, in Chattanooga, my friend. No. He is safe and healthy and back in a while. This was Canada. And it's a little deal. The beaver just got stuck in the subway. We've all been lost. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've been stuck in a drought in there before. Hey, myself. coming up, coming up Wednesday on the show, Blaze Brumley is going to be on. She's talking about her new show, Cyberly. We'll get to hear all about what that is. Jim Parker, he is working on those analytics for, for cards and the supply chain of trading cards. It's a fascinating space. If you have not been following what's been going on in the trading card space, you have no idea the value of some of these things. Shane Sindler, he's the inter- inventor of the truck stick. And we also have the Hotep Trucker. It's going to be a wild show on Wednesday. Subscribe to the What the Truck News or FreightWaves.com slash WTT. Find me on Twitter at Timothy Tunas, D-O-O-N-E-R. My name is Vincent the Dude. What do you got, Vincent? Peace and love, everybody. Peace and love.